where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, a.k.a. the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Folks, if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Uh, visit the donations page on our website, FallonForum.com, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Uh, check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for large and small animals alike for the past 30-plus years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, later in the program, we're going to be discussing how the mainstream media, in this case specifically the New York Times, uh, have created this bogus, uh, quote, both sides argument as a, basically as a way to further entrench the status quo and uh, it, it kind of create this false concept of the, quote, moderate politician. We're also going to be talking about uh, hey, the tax code. I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but uh, it's really important because there are radical churches with transparent political motives that have been able to use the uh, tax code, their tax-exempt status, as a way to, um, well, to enhance their political uh qualities uh, in a ways that it's not intended to be used that way. So we'll talk about that. And finally, uh, Kathy Burns and I are going to be kicking around ideas about what state legislatures might and should do to support local food security. This is somewhat timely because, of course, in January, that's when it all kicks off when uh, most legislatures around the country begin their sessions. But first, um, we're going to be talking about COPE 27. Charles with me today, folks. Hello, Charles. Welcome to the program. How's it going, Ed? That's going all right. So, uh, yeah, the big question, COPE 27, a success, a failure, a mixed bag. And um, I've got some stuff to say on that, Charles, but if you want to kick it off, uh, have at it. Yeah, I mean, usually these get-togethers generate <laughs> a little bit more... Um, journalism and and reporting around them. And it sort of seemed like um, maybe because Sharm el-Sheikh is a little bit off the beaten path. I mean, I've been there. It is not... You've been? To, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And... Um, you were you were being a tourist, I assume? Actually, yeah. It was when I was deployed to Somalia and we did Yo. a little touristing over really? Sharm el-Sheikh. Yeah. All right. So... Um, did not know that about you. It, it seemed... The only thing I really heard at all was about the issue of um, the loss and damage funds mm -hmm. for both the Southern Hemisphere as well as, you know, some of the Southern South Asian countries well, that are being poor, devastated. Poor countries, and some of them are in the Northern Hemisphere, but uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, it makes sense that the countries that have done the least to create the climate crisis and are now the ones that are bearing the worst of the impact should perhaps be compensated by the countries that caused the problem. Although it's taken forever to get the U.S. on board. I mean, it didn't look like the U.S. was going to endorse the loss and damage fund until the very end of the, uh, of the uh, session. Right. <laughs> so I'm wondering, hmm, what, what, what and I don't know for sure. I don't know if anybody knows what caused John Kerry's people to step up and say, okay, we're going to support this. Because, I mean, it's been 30 years. This thing has been 30 years in the making. These countries, especially the Pacific Island nations that are at most at risk of going underwater. Well, literally on the water. Literally they're on going the water. To be, yeah, some of, these some of these islands are not going to exist. Right. And, and even those countries that aren't going to be literally non-existent mm -hmm. because they'll be under the ocean. Look at Pakistan this past year. Right. I mean, just devastation. Billions of dollars worth of damage. And, again, the, the, the average Pakistani is not contributing very heavily to the climate crisis. But, so, I don't know, what, what do you, what, why do you think it is that the, that the U.S. has been dragging its feet on supporting that and at the very last minute of, of the uh, summit decided to step forward and give its blessing to loss and damage? Um, I can't say specifically why they waited to the last minute, specifically at this meeting. I mean, obviously— um, 
the United States has been all over the place because of the political issues here in our own country, which mm -hmm. is that we have essentially one party which is predicated on pretending that uh, climate change, if if it is occurring, is not a function of human activity. But that would of, be the Republican Party. But of sunspots and the the fact that the Earth has gone through multiple periods of varying heating. I believe the only <laughs> major political party in the world that denies the reality of climate change. Yes. And yeah, it, it's not really incredible. because of any science. We all know it's because... Obviously, the oil and gas interests kick in a lot of money to both sides, but okay. they do kick in more to the Republicans. So, so let me let me throw this this uh, idea out to you, and I, I haven't read this anywhere. I know, nobody has said this that I've I mean, maybe, maybe probably somebody has. I haven't seen it. So this is from my noggin to your ear, and it may be it may be ridiculous, and you can tell me what you think. But my sense is the U.S. has well, the U.S. has held out for thirty years because they don't want to pay the money. They don't want to they don't want to fork over the tens or hundreds of billions that would logically be needed to. To, to help mitigate the damage from climate change in these poor countries. But they changed their mind at the last minute because they struck a deal. The deal was no, um, no serious commitment to emissions reduction, and that's the key. You can't, you can't be serious about the scientific reality of climate change and not support reducing emissions. And that was the big failing of COPE, was no commitment to reducing emissions. Well, but... By the same token, we're asking these same countries, some of which are coming into a greater industrialization and, right. um, and you know, development, we're asking them, well, you should, you know, control emissions and not use the cheapest way of producing electricity, which is coal, for the most part, um, to sacrifice for the rest of us. Yeah. And, you know, the United States would point out, well, you know, we are reducing emissions, but we just export our CO2 <laughs> load because we have things made in China. Right. And now and now we are the largest oil producing nation in the world. Right. And exporting that. Right. You know, yeah, the, the U.S. asking other countries to not be a part of the climate problem is the height of hypocrisy. But it wouldn't be if we were serious about our own emissions about, about stopping the build-out of fossil fuel infrastructure, about seriously shifting dramatically, quickly, and effectively to uh, alternatives that don't, um, that don't contribute to the climate problem. But we're not, we're not willing to do that. It's, well, not, it's not just a matter of not willing to do that. It's, it's the fact that the matter is that um, we're back to the energy independence issue, which has just been worsened by the Ukraine war. And the fact that Europe is a hostage to Russian natural gas. Going into winter. Right. Yeah. And so now you're seeing the same issues in Europe where they wanted to decarbonize, but they're going to have to do something to get through the winter. Right. And we, you can only get so much liquid natural gas over to Europe from the Louisiana bayou, you know, and, and we're, of course, you know, there's parts of the United States that are being completely destroyed by this infrastructure. Yeah. for uh, ex both extraction and export of things like liquid, liquid natural gas. So I think the political realities and, and the fact that you've got certain petrostates, I mean, Russia's a petrostate for the sure, most part. Obviously, a lot of the Gulf states are petrostates. Right. So it's not just the companies. It's easy to demonize these multinationals. But you've also got countries that are basically, their prosperity is, is uh, predicated on the continuing use of uh, fossil fuel. Yeah, and those tend to be countries that have a pretty lousy human rights uh, record. Uh, Russia, uh, sorry, yeah, Russia, they, Nigeria, the, the yeah. you know the Gulf states for the most part. But I mean, you got countries. I mean, you like, can't even drink beer in Qatar. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, well, really. you can, but it's heavily you, controlled. You would have been fine there. I would have been fine. There. I don't <laughs> drink beer, right? No, I mean, I I think you're running up against many uh, you know diverging. Um, Issues, which is geopolitical issues. Um, it it it's true that the renewables are becoming economically feasible to uh, be able to replace fossil fuel in many settings. But we're still running in. I I mean, I still have the same question here in the United States, which is no different, I'm sure, in Europe and other places. If you're going to electrify your transportation vehicles, where's that electricity going to come from? And how are you going to get it through a grid that is way too old to carry that kind of load? You know, so we don't, the United States doesn't even want to pay for doing 
the kind of modifications in our own country yeah. to deal and with the, climate And those change. are all really important technical questions. Uh, but the bottom line is we have to, if we believe that science is accurate, and there is absolutely no reason not to at this point, uh, certainly in the realm of science, we go through the phase of postulating theories and, and testing ideas. And at some point you realize, okay, yeah, the Earth is not flat. Uh, okay, there is such a thing as gravity. Uh, <laughs> and okay, uh, you know, theories about, various theories about why the climate was changing, uh, we, we now know what it is. And so we know where it's going. And we know it's not going to be pretty. We know, I mean, there are some that feel we are headed toward extinction. Well, I know we've, 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 and had, we've had that conversation we had recently on this program. Yes, yeah. Although but, I, I always found I found it interesting he was waiting for it by running an Airbnb up in Vermont. Well, in the meantime, you got to do something. I guess, right? <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> there, there are there are there are higher there there are, there are worse ways to make a living and and higher forms of a carbon uh, carbon. Footprint, I I, I but, think uh, I, I think that the finally the establishment of some sort of funding, you know, to to help with the damage that's being done outside of the, you know, first world countries that always get all the attention, um, it wasn't was an achievement. I, as I said before, I really think we're kind of getting to the point where I truly believe the majority of people think we're going to have to have a technological solution, which is going to be extraordinarily dangerous yeah so, and that's going to be putting reflective chemicals sure. into or, the or something atmosphere. ridiculous that's going to be going to it'll seem like the last resort and it'll be it'll be a failure i i don't i don't see us being able to tech our way it, out of this problem at it, all you know even even if sulfurizing the atmosphere does work in some ways it's clearly going to have unforeseen circumstances yeah, or, and, I, and it's totally going to change where Fertile zones are going to be, et cetera. So I, I'd rather try Andrew Andrew Yang's uh, suggestion, even though it's, it's 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 almost comical. Pack dirt around glaciers to slow them from melting. <laughs> he, no, he, he said that to Kathy and I at I a, know he did. At, I at a meeting him. at a cafe in Johnston, right. Iowa, and uh, I actually like Andrew Yang, and I'm, I'm intrigued by his uh, forward party, but that's that's not a workable solution. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's probably less damaging than throwing a bunch of crap up into the atmosphere and hoping that that somehow protects us, but. Well, I'm not sure how, you, how you're going to keep the North Pole, which is mostly ice floating on water, um, from how, how putting dirt there is going to help. It's not. It's not going to help. It's not going to help. So you, here's, a, you know, you went, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, uh, quote, our planet is still in the emergency room. This is after COP27. Mm -hmm. We need to drastically reduce emissions now. And this is an issue this COP did not address. The world still needs a giant leap on climate ambition. You know, and I, I don't, it's very frustrating, Charles, because we know what's happening. We know where this is going. And I would say that it's probably going to happen faster than scientists tell us. That, the, the scientists have been right about everything except one thing, timeline. Timeline is faster. And so when you've got that kind of evidence, that kind of consensus, and you have this kind of response from the world, again, avoiding any cuts in emissions, coming up with a loss and damage fund. And by the way, this loss and damage fund, how do we know that's even going to be be fulfilled? I mean, we're, expe we're expecting these nations who agreed to put in billions of dollars to, to help address the impacts of climate change. We're, we're expecting them to do that. Do you really think a Republican Congress is, in the U.S. is going to come up with a red cent, one penny? To help Pakistan or the Pacific Islands, I, well, I don't. Only, I do not believe it. Only if they have something on Hunter Biden. Um, <laughs> but well, let's hope they do <laughs> for the sake of the planet. <laughs> no, I mean it's just it's um uh, it's well, really I mean, it's really I, sad. I, but you know the question I have is okay, so Pakistan has this you know historical flood, you know this biblical almost flood in terms yeah. of how much of of, of its landmass was underwater. Right. Okay, so is that event, which is so out of the ordinary, the event that means that they would get money out of this fund, or do you have to wait for another one? I mean, because if you have a 100-year flood, the first time that 100-year flood happens, then it's just a 100-year flood. It'll, be, it'll, it'll happen again in a few years. Okay. Well, we, we've had so Iowa, Des Moines. Only... Des Moines has had two 500-year floods 
We had it two in about 15 years. Right. So the first one, <laughs> so, you can't blame necessarily on climate change. Oh, right? there you go, Charles. I see you're like a negotiator for the, uh, well, for the I'm fossil just saying, fuel I'm, lobby I'm, here, aren't you? No, it has nothing to do with that. I'm just asking the logical question of, so if it's something's a rare occurrence and it happens, that's not necessarily, we can't necessarily blame a cause. Yeah. But if it happens five years later, and before it never happened so close together, well, then the second one would certainly be So here's the, here's the again, my, my, my theory as to why COPE was a flop. Uh, you had you had the U.S. and some other and some of the other petro states lobbying against uh, emissions reductions. At the last minute, they found a way to support loss and damage because they know it's not going anywhere, and it doesn't address the core problem. How do we how do we prevent the planet from continuing to warm to 1.5 degrees centigrade and beyond? And how do we prepare for the impacts globally, not just in Pakistan or the Pacific Islands? How do we prepare for the impacts? I think the U.S was part of the problem. I know it's the Biden administration. Uh, it would have been worse under the, under the Trump administration. But you know, we all said we had 600 oil and gas lobbyists. Why are those people even allowed to be at a COP27 meeting? Why are they even there? You know, if I was the rest of the world, I would say, look, you petro states, USA as well, we're gonna we're we're gonna we're gonna stop doing business with you, and I know well, that. that how, so, and how are they gonna power their electric grid? How are they going to warm their houses? Yeah. Well, that's another conversation, and I think there's an answer. But the bottom line is, nature bats last. If I can quote Guy McPherson, mm-hmm. <laughs> who I don't buy, I don't buy his entire scenario, but he's right about that. And. Um, you know, we've got a world of hurt happening here and, uh, and very little action. And again, the U.N. Secretary General said as much as well. So, hey, we could talk about this a lot longer, Charles, and I'm sure you'd love to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got to take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to switch gears and talk about how the mainstream media have been manufacturing this myth about um, political moderates. We'll talk about that in a minute when we come back on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, which we'll talk about on today's program, the niche we provide here is pretty darn important. So please uh, do what you can to support what we do. You can visit uh, FallonForum.com, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Lipsham says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so again, Charles Goldman with me today, folks. And, um, you know, I've, I'm not a fan of the mainstream media, Charles. Uh, I, I will talk later in the program, but to some extent, they, sometimes they get it right. But when it came to reporting on the election, it was amazing to me how they created this 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 um, this uh, this false paradigm. The extremists on both the left and the right lost, and uh, it was moderation, moderate politicians, mean uh, you know middle of the road types who won. And you look at this. There's this great analysis by a group called uh, a reporting uh, group called Fair, 
Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And uh, they, they look at this article by, um, by uh, Weissman and Gluck with the New York Times, and they just, they, they just eviscerate it. <laughs> they do a fantastic job. The, uh, the article uh, in question is called, On the Right and Left, People Voted to Reject Extremists in Midterms. Now, that pretty much sums it up. That's kind of where the mainstream media is at. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this reminds me of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, was it uh, Char- Charlotte's, uh, Charlottesville? Right. There was uh, good people on both good sides. Good people on both sides. And, you know, the, the white supremacists and the uh, people protesting them. Mm-hmm. Good people on both sides. And that's kind of where I see the New York Times at here. There's bad people on both sides. There's bad extremists on the right, and they got beat. And there's bad extremists on the left, and they got beat. And, again... Fair does an amazing job at just eviscerating that 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 empty shell argument. Well, it's really interesting because obviously compared to the rest of the world, nobody's an extremist on either side except for the QAnon MAGA uh, extremists. Well, I think the Repu- Republican Party is pretty extreme. Right, but it's it's very clear that the range of extremism is much larger. Yeah. On the right sure. at this point, and you, and we do have some extremists on the far left, the defund the police types. Well, but a lot of the extremists on the left are uh, the people we give way too much credence to, which yes. are the people who spend most of the day on Twitter or various social media. Right, and they, you know, we don't see as many of the politicians on the left who have views as as extreme as the extreme right many of whom did run this election, um, who are infused with all of the QAnon and QAnon light views, you know, the anti-vaxxers, the, the sexual predation conspiracy that QAnon, you know, is basically, um, right. you know, uh, centered around. Um, <laughs> which has no but, basis in reality Right. I mean, what's really interesting, too, is that the, the media has decided now, they've decided on what the, their, their next thing is going to be. And, and what you see and is, that is? Um, destroy Trump as a viable candidate. Right. And, and they, have, they have Ron DeSantis to help. And that. exactly right. Yeah. And DeSantis is the next great savior on the right. And so they made a big policy-wise, not that different than Trump. Right. But, but, I'm, <laughs> yeah, but my right. point is this. So we heard about the the brilliance of Ron DeSantis's gerrymander of Florida <laughs> and uh, the fact that he won, you know, the governorship by such a large 20 amount. 20 points or so? Right. Well, that wasn't that much more than Josh Shapiro cleaned the clock of the MAGA candidate in Pennsylvania or Gretchen Whitmer won, right? In Michigan, right. In Michigan. Yeah. So all we hear about is DeSantis's brilliance, right? Right. Um, and in Pennsylvania, they didn't suppress the vote to the great degree that DeSantis was able to do. Yeah, if, if you'd suppress the vote by when the people of Florida in a uh, referendum, 60 plus percent of them you know, passed a couple of years ago saying that felons should get back their right to vote. But then the, the state comes up with all sorts of things yeah. like, well, you have to pay restitution. We can't tell you how much it is, <laughs> but until you pay back the restitution, you can't vote. Uh-huh. Well, that essentially disenfranchises a huge number of Who's in prison in the United States for the most right, part? People right, of right. color. Right, right. Right. Also, or, you have an extremely poor, conservative. Yeah. You have an extremely conservative, you know, Latino population because a lot of these people Cuba, there yeah. are from Cuba or countries where they hate communism and they hate anything that smells of communism and socialism. Like and, Medicare. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, so this, so the, the the mainstream media is always coming up with some sort of, you know. Uh, well, and the way I, I, they want us to view things. But yeah. in terms of what you're saying here, okay, so what was the margin that the House won, that the Republicans won the House by? What, five, six seats, something like that? That was predictable almost by the gerrymander. Yeah, yeah. You know, because before the election, yeah. that just shows you how much of, of it, that really, the House of Representatives is little different than whatever the Politburo version of, you know, in Russia is. Because it's the same people being elected over and over. I mean, before the election, it was they were pointing out there's only 35 to 40 seats that were really competitive based on the gerrymanders. Mm. And the well, only... Yeah, now, now, in Iowa, we had three seats that were... I mean, Iowa does not gerrymander. No, but That's it ended our... up with the one seat that, you know, Polk County predominantly was in 
was diluted by a huge change into a rural. Well, small change, but a big enough, enough change to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but what I'm saying is, but that wasn't gerrymandering. That was just the way. No, the I understand crumbled. that, and that's yeah. fine. And in some ways, that's what happened in New York too, because the New York Democrats got greedy with a gerrymander that they ended up having it getting thrown out. And instead of coming up with an alternative, they refused to do that. And they lost and the court. A, a, yeah. a, a special yeah. master basically did it for them. Right. And so now they lost seats because... You could well argue that New York is the reason the uh, Democrats lost the House. Right. I mean, what, four seats? And these are four seats, if I understand, these are four seats of uh, more corporate Democrats. I refuse to use the New York Times word moderate. These are Democrats that are more right. in line with the corporate agenda. Well, who is they, who's the ones who lost? Who's a radical Democrat? Uh, Bernie? I mean, what is he saying that's so radical? Is he saying that he's not going to accept the election? Is he saying before an election that if I lose, it's, it's fixed? Yeah. If I win, good to go. Okay? I mean, literally, yeah. this is what this, the equivalency is moronic. And that, that's that's a really interesting point that the uh, the fair analysis of the New York Times piece makes. Uh, this New York Times piece, um, and I'll quote from there, the fair analysis describes some of the actual extremism, the extremism that voters apparently rejected on the right, including the embrace of Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 election, a morass of conspiracy theories and far right policy positions, the drive to ban abortions, and a drift away from fundamental rights and democracy itself. And also, the claim that children were going to were going beyond gender and identifying as cats who needed little litter boxes in their classrooms. I mean, okay, crazy I mean, stuff. It, yeah, you know. But but then but when when they go to criticize, they, when they say yes, extremism on both sides. What do they show you on the left? That they, there's there's nothing there. There's nothing there. I mean, you could they, they could have at least said maybe defunding the police is a bit extreme. Uh, maybe some of the uh, woke cancel culture stuff. But it turned out extreme. no one cared about that. I mean, oh, no, yeah, exactly. I, I, Nobody I cares s- about that. There were so many commercials here about that. It turned out that less than 10% of the electorate gave a damn about that. And that they were actually a bit smarter than they were given credit for. That they understood what they meant by defund the police. Yeah. Right? Which was to take some of the things that are the police are forced to do well, and have social workers, have people who can intervene in other ways. I mean, I, th- I think, yes, yeah, some people mean that, and that's that's good. Well, I think some, some people figured out. Some, some people mean just to get rid of, get rid of the police altogether. Okay. But, and, okay. Right. And I understand because it goes back to slave militias and everything else. Yeah. But this is the kind, it's just, it's the same thing as the, the academics who during, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter, um, demonstration period you know that that book came out from some academic up in massachusetts probably you know about how looting is a act of of oh yeah social change that is just garbage that's crazy that is just crazy that is just criminal it's a crime what is yeah you know yeah it's kind of what angela davis said about her boyfriend he was just redistributing the wealth by robbing banks you know, so I well, mean, we yeah, Bonnie and Clyde, Robin Hood, right. it's all good. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I I think the point is is that there, it, it this equivalency. It's always this way, right? You've got leaders of the Republican Party saying things every day that are racist, that are anti-Semitic that are anti-LGBTQ, that are basically, I mean, if I hear one more time that the Supreme Court is the most religiously friendly court in this this country has ever had, uh, no, the term is Christian friendly. You know, these, these decisions they're making have nothing to do with anybody else's religious freedom. Mm -hmm. It's all about that religious freedom in this country has been flipped around to I, you have to not make me uncomfortable by what you want me to do. Okay. Now, I agree there's more than one baker in Colorado who could have cooked the cake, baked the cake for, the for a couple. homosexual yeah. couple. Right. And right. they just wanted to win a point, and that was stupid. Yeah. Okay. But there are other situations where um, everything now is about if I'm discomforted in my Christian belief, you are violating my religious freedom. Right, I mean, we'll talk about this in a minute. So, yeah, that is super radical. Yeah. That is super extreme. Yeah. And, and and that's how some. And again, yes, the Times is right to point out that there are candidates that had those kinds of extreme positions. Some of them won, and a bunch of them lost. I mean, I, I was I was I was happy that 
the most extreme candidates who would have been in a position to overturn an, the election in 2024 lost. You know, that, that, that was encouraging. Yeah. But, but you know, this, the Times continues to perpetrate this myth that there's this, there's this moderate savior type candidate and you need to nominate that moderate or you're going to lose. And It's just like what the Republicans tell the Democrats. That's class warfare, right? right. Every time they talk yeah. that someone like Sanders will talk about something, they say, you, you know, you're dividing the country. That's class warfare. I mean, basically, if the, Dem- if the Republicans tell the Democrats they shouldn't do something, that's exactly what they should be doing. Because <laughs> right, they're right, fearful right, right, right. that if the American people ever understood what a scam, yeah. you know, like the, tra- the Trump tax cut was, and this supposed great economy that Trump, you know, led during his... It's like the, it's like the pandemic never happened. It's like, oh, that doesn't count that we were in this period of zero growth and no activity because people were at home. It was during his administration, okay? So, but this is what the Times does. You know, the Times is guilty of the deification of Trump before he became a candidate. Right. They were the ones who were writing about what a genius he was. And they're doing that with Ron DeSantis now. Right. And and once he replaces Trump as the centerpiece of the Republican Party, meaning— once DeSantis, presuming DeSantis beats Trump in a primary, that, that, that's not a given. But then, yeah, the Times will, they'll no longer be his best friend. You know, they, they, they are a status quo paper and they identify better with the status quo represented by the Democratic Party. Well, you know, because they which all... Which is unfortunate. But they all, <laughs> it's, 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 it's all of the media are petrified they're going to lose access, right? So that's why they never want to, you know, really anger anybody too much. Right. Hey, it's called investigative journalism. It's not called stenography. Okay, you don't need. It's called ac- fake news, Charles. No, Come on. No, you don't need. You don't need access to do journalism. Yeah. Right. If you just want to tell me what they said, I can watch it. I can watch it on my phone, yeah. you know, or on TV. Do some journalism, yeah. and if that means some people won't talk to you, yeah. Well, and again, speaking of journalism, this, this fair piece is great journalism. And, and they, 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 they look at three Democratic candidates that the New York Times uh, labeled as progressive. It gave examples of, of left extremism. And mm-hmm. it's really kind of ridiculous because, I mean, look, looking at one of them, Christy Smith, um, uh, she's a former state assembly member in California. And the LA Times uh, earlier this year, called her, quote, a level-headed centrist with years of relevant experience. And she's one that the New York Times labeled as progressive and extreme on the left. Um, so her, her district had been held by Republicans for a long time. A gal named, uh, a Democrat named Katie Hill yeah, won Yeah, she's in the one who got caught with the sex scandal, I think, uh, wasn't maybe, she? Maybe, but she won by a nine-point margin. Yeah, but then it, something and, happened. And then, no, she, the first uh, year. she, yeah, she, she resigned. That's probably yeah. why. I couldn't yeah. remember. She resigned. Right. And then she lost a seat to a Republican. Um, and, uh, and, uh, so, <laughs> but, 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 but Hill, you know, Smith did not run like Hill did on, on Medicare reform, on, on all these, these issues that are Medicare for all, you know, Smith, um, she was a much more centrist candidate like the LA Times described and she lost. Well, maybe that's why she so for the Times to somehow fabricate that she was a progressive, it, it's just absolutely untrue. Well, you look know, at Mahoney. Mahoney was the head of, yeah, the, sure. of the, the Democratic, you know, House caucus, basically. And he lost in his district. He's hardly a radical. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it, and the, people the, the, were looking for somebody to talk about the issues yeah. that, you know, the Democrats ran away from the economy. Yeah. Right. Well, and despite and people this, wanted to hear them say something about despite it. Despite all these things, except maybe in Iowa and Florida and a few other places, Democrats did pretty well despite all these things. But you know what? Given the extremism of the Republican Party, Democrats should be cleaning up. And it's not going to happen, though. And, of course, the New York Times is just going to make it worse. Well, there was one good thing here in Iowa. What? And that was that Jake Chapman lost. Oh. <laughs> and that just showed you, yeah. want to talk about extremism? Somebody who introduces bills that we, it's a, it should be a felony for teachers to yeah. you know, teach but, he, about these things. Like, he didn't lose by much. No, but, <laughs> but he, he did lose. lose. Yes. Hey, we've got to take a short break. Uh, when Charles and I come back, we're going to be discussing how some churches misuse the tax code. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store 
With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Support this alternative to the angry shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, anywhere in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake, FamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, so Charles, uh, church tax exemption. I mean. Okay, well, first of all, it's too bad we don't have, like, we're not streaming here because they don't get to see the cup that you gave me. Yeah, it's the cup that, that, <laughs> that, that we give you every time you co That's right. It is, it is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. The Bill of Rights. And when you, when you put a hot liquid in it, all the rights disappear except for the Second Amendment, which, of course, I'm sure everybody's memorized at this point. <laughs> the right, of course, to bear arms shall not be infringed upon. And, of course, the Tenth Amendment, which gives everything that the federal government does to the states. Right. So. <laughs> but then, but apparently your, your tea has cooled to the point where it's no longer my, effective the rest of, the That's right. Rights. The rest of my yeah. rights have returned, not just the ones that the Republicans support. All right. So um. <laughs> what, about, what about the right to get a tax exemption if you are uh, a charitable organization? Well, well, if you're a charitable organization, you should get tax exemptions because then that money is being used. I mean, that's what nonprofits are supposed to be doing. Right. But there's, and there's certainly absolutely well, plenty of legitimate ones, but there's a right. lot of abuse going well, on. Well, there's, thing, there's two things going on here. One is that um, there are some organizations that are um, and have gotten from the IRS uh, exemptions as a church, including, uh, you might, you know, uh, be surprised, the Family Research Council. What's that? Uh, that is a right-wing advocacy group, which has no church. Uh, it, its head, Tony Perkins, is a minister, but okay. he does not do anything so, so, ministerial. So they're a, they're a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, not necessarily a church. No, they actually have recently gained the church exemption okay. from the IRS. Now, the IRS has 14 questions that the uh, entities have to answer. And you're going to read them all. I'm, going to, I'm not going to read all 14. <laughs> um, so, for instance, the Family Research Council, which is now a church, it's a Christian nationalist uh, advocacy organization. Um, point two is that the church has to have a recognized creed and form of worship. Uh, not going to happen. What? That's easy to do. You could... No, this, it's not a church. It doesn't have any creed. Well, you can make, a, make, make one up. Um, it's, it has to be an organization of ordained ministers. Yes, there are well, some ministers uh, who are members of what it. About but the, what about the Mormon Church? They, they, you're, they are, there's not formal a formal ministry in the Mormon Church. Um, but no, I mean they have. That's true. They're not leadership in that sense, but there are precincts and there is leadership in the church. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have an established place of worship. The only building the Family Research Council has is in Washington, where it lobbies. Okay. From. Well, there you go. Um, it has there. to have regular religious services, and it has to sponsor schools for the religious instruction of the young, none of which this organization does. Nevertheless, they, as well as some other, uh, like, you know, uh, organizations, including, I think, uh, 
Samaritan's Purse. So that's Billy Graham's Jr.'s okay. uh, you know, organization. Samaritan's Purse is, in fact, a nonprofit. That Samaritan's does, Purse. Right, that does, that does do charitable work. But with the, a name like Evangel- that, I would hope so. Evangelistic Association is, it's Franklin Graham who has that, is um, an advocacy organization. Then you have the Liberty Council, which is a legal nonprofit, you know, and they, they're like some of these others that okay, supply so, the lawyers. Okay, right, so what's the problem? So the problem is that, first of all, it's a problem why these entities, non, you know, given church exemptions. It allows them to hide even the the minimal, minimal reporting that um, non-church entities do about where the biggest, who the biggest donors are, and some of the things that you can monitor where the money's coming into but these organizations. I don't think any 501c3 nonprofit tax-exempt organization has to no, report who its donors are. These organizations had to file a Form 990. Right. Okay. Familiar they, with it, yeah. Right. They were not nonprofits before. Right. All right. So because of their advocacy, they had to form do the Form 990. By becoming churches, they no longer have to do that. So it's just another way of, of dark money coming into this. Okay. The other problem— And, and that money that comes in is tax-exempt for the donor, tax-deductible for the donor. Yes, because yeah. they're a church. Right. It's the same way that it would be sure. for anybody who yeah. files, sure. including people who are just members of uh, an actual church. Sure. These, these are not churches. Let's just get it out of the way. These are not <laughs> churches. But well, what's, ye of little faith. Right. What's what's interesting is at the same time, there is a drive both at state court level and federal court level to expand the ministerial exception. And the ministerial exception is what allows um, religious organizations to avoid the discrimination laws that otherwise they would have to follow. Because when the Supreme Court has looked at this previously, you know, they, if you're a minister, if you're a leader of these organizations and, you know, you're found to have, you know, let's say that you, you're legally married to somebody of the same sex, mm-hmm. right? In the normal situation, you cannot be fired on that basis. But the ministerial exception is that at least at the ministerial level, these religious organizations have the right to control their clergy. Okay. All right. Which is it's, I, I, that's perfectly I mean, reason. I, I don't agree with that. I don't but agree I, with it, but, but, I think, but I think legally, a, legally, sure, it, it would be a violation of the establishment clause. Sure. Right. The ones that, of course, the right is always interested in saying doesn't say the church and state are separate. It would be a it would be a violation of the establishment clause to tell them that they can't fire a clergy. Yeah. But so the, I mean, the bottom line is there's a bunch of these. But wait, wait, wait. It gets okay. worse because what's All happening right. is that these same organizations are now trying to claim that pretty much anybody who works in the organization is, in fact, a minister. So the receptionist, Hmm. you know, the people cleaning up the place, they are now, all all the same organizations that are getting church status are helping churches and uh, similar religious entities, church schools, to set it up so that they appear to be, that everybody basically has a ministerial function which would allow them to discriminate against, in terms of hiring and firing, against all of their employees. And what's really interesting, of course, is this, is, and it would also allow them to, to discriminate in terms of, for instance, who gets to go to their schools, right? And this is what led to the fundamentalist Protestant movement allying with the, with the Republicans in the 70s, was the fact that the tax-exempt status was taken away from these segregation schools. Now, we live in a state Mm. where the governor of this state is very interested in funneling money from public funds to religious schools. That's going to be a huge conversation this coming legislation. That's correct. And this is what these schools want to do. They want to basically say, we want to discriminate freely, and we want to do it within the law because everybody— And get a tax break while we're doing it. And get a tax break on top of that, and— not only get a tax break, but take money from the public coffers to do it. Yeah. So it's, it's a great arrangement. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, 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 I, I mean, to me, it's horrifying. And of course, the sure. real concern of other, you know, lawyers, uh, you know, for you know, like ACLU and others, is that they're going to try then to expand this 
in analogous to the Hobby Lobby case. The Hobby Lobby case was the one where, you know, all of a sudden this was a privately owned corporation in which even though up to that point they'd been paying for contraception, they suddenly had an epiphany, you know, that they couldn't do this anymore. It was morally wrong. And that therefore, in the Hobby Lobby case, they got the right to basically say, we're not going to do this anymore. And this is not in a church setting. This is actually just in a corporate setting. Right. And the fear is that you're, and someone analogously, they're going to be able to try to bring cases before what's a very sympathetic court, to say the least, to these kind of arguments, and argue that even for-profit corporations shouldn't be forced to violate their religious beliefs. But couldn't this backfire? I mean, no. you don't. No, why not? I mean, <laughs> no, what, because what, you, you've what, got the federal judiciary is in sure, the back pocket. But, uh, but but why? I mean, John Oliver formed a church to make a point about how easy it was to abuse tax exempt status. Couldn't right. you have? I mean, couldn't you have people forming all kinds of interesting churches and quasi religious organizations claiming tax exempt status? But uh, it's, from any from any political the, perspective, taking the, the advantage tax of exempt status is not really what they're seeking. The tax exempt status makes it more lucrative for them to be tax exempt. But what they're seeking is total freedom right. within their religious beliefs to do whatever they want. If any entity is even abutting their religious beliefs, and at the same time to hide who's putting the money into all this. Right. Well, those three things go really well together. Don't pay taxes. Hide your donors. And get to do whatever you want in right. terms of discrimination. Right. So yeah. I mean, it, it. And these are again. These are you know, these are the things that. Um, and and let's put it this way: you're not reading about this in the New York Times. Well, no, we've already talked about how wonderful the New York Times is. <laughs> well, anyway. No, I mean, it, 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 the the Times, you know, to their credit, did a very extensive and troubling series on the political influence, for instance, of the Orthodox Jews in New York. And how they have played the system in a similar right. way. I did see that. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was actually took up a huge amount of the paper. It was very well done. Right. You know, but it, it's the arguments are the same. It's the same thing in this case. What the Orthodox Jews in New York had done is they had you know uh, taken their political clout to basically extract from the you know from the city for the most part uh, a lot of funding, even though. Their schools clearly did not meet this, the standards, the state standards for what they were teaching, and the same thing goes on. The same thing's happening with a lot of these other religious schools, that are you know in in the Christian realm for the most part, where they're not meeting state standards either. I mean, their curriculum is basically a religiously based curriculum, and science and math as filtered through those religious beliefs. And we we know the science of the Bible is. A, you know, extremely sophisticated. <laughs> so, but I mean, this is you no know, sarcasm intended. No, there. a lot of sarcasm yeah, intended. Right. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, like you, I'm bothered by the fact that on top of everything else, we as the taxpayers are supposed to be paying not just through the loss of revenue from these entities, but actually having our money taken and given to these entities to then discriminate in the way that they want to discriminate. So my, given your information, given your analysis, uh, my impression is that this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. Well, it's going to get worse because even with the Biden administration, the, e the uh, Equal, Oppor Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is still controlled by three Trump appointees. And Why is that? Why have they not been replaced? That's a good question. Hmm. It's really a good question because they're the ones who actually put out some 130-page document, which pretty much is a guidebook for how these religious organizations can keep the government out of managing what goes on in these organizations. It is interesting that these, these radical right organizations benefit so much from uh, the tax structure that the, that the IRS has established. And yet, uh, on in political campaigns, they'll bash the eighty-seven thousand additional IRS employees. Oh, you mean the ones coming out of the corn with the sunglasses on? Yeah, 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 yeah right. They, well, I, we see them every day I'm, here I'm in Iowa. I'm really scared about about a bunch yeah. of CPAs <laughs> who are armed <laughs> to the teeth. It's 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 ironic, but uh, right. But so what what needs to be done? I always like to end these conversations with, okay, call to action, Charles. Charles, what do we do? Well, the, the I think the first thing is that three Trump appointees need to go. From, right, we'll from get, the I'll, EEOC. I'll, I'll, I'll get on that. Right. <laughs> and and I, I think people need to see that this is part and parcel of all of these drives to be able to get state funding 
for organizations that many of you out there would not be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And going back to what I said before, it's not that this court is religion-friendly. The Supreme Court. Right. It's that it is Mm Christian-friendly. And occasionally, in in the case of, of, of like, yeshiva in New York and the case that will probably come up to the Supreme Court— some other, you know, religions sometimes get involved. What's but for that the most case? part, well, that's about that Yeshiva University didn't want to have a well, LGBTQ club. I mean, you no, know, what, what denomination is that? Radical Jew, you know, radical oh, okay. Orthodox Judaism, okay. and you know, you know, to me, the Orthodox of any religion are all the same. You know, which is we're right, everybody else is wrong. That means we get to do what we want to do. <laughs> you know, and um, it, it, the God of Love is very exclusionary. Um, but, um, no, I mean, I, I, I just think this is, it goes back to what I said before, the, the, the religious freedom of the, uh, Bill of Rights is being turned completely on its head Mm. in this country right now. Yeah. Well, Charles, thanks again for joining us today, folks. Uh, Charles Goldman with us at least once a month, uh. We uh, appreciate all the effort you put into these conversations, Charles. Thanks again. Uh, When we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about what state legislatures might and perhaps should do in order to bolster local food security initiatives at a time when food security is becoming a bigger problem. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, folks, you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, become a sponsor of this program. And thanks to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has an excellent catering and floral service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. A topic that affects all of us, even if it's not always, you know, top of the mind for those who advocate for good government policies, is food security, including local food production, processing, and distribution. And as climate change and global insecurity, like the war in Ukraine, as these things continue to wreak havoc on the supply chain, what communities can do to assure their food viability is going to be more and more important. And right now, Kathy, uh, we're looking at the um, likely start of the legislative session for most states in January, mm-hmm. certainly the case here in Iowa. 43 of them. And we think this is a really good time for people to be talking with their lawmakers on what the state should be doing to help with, you know, with local food, foodscaping, um, efforts to begin to grow more food, where it can be controlled and where it will assure some protection when you know food insecurity happens because the because of a climate disaster or supply system supply disruption yeah. yeah so what yeah what are your thoughts on this Kathy well there's a really good example here in Iowa and there might be other states with similar things but just so you know the kind of initiative we're talking about in uh, uh, 2021 in Iowa the economic development Authority um, started a grant program called an 
I like the name of this program, Butchery Innovation and Revitalization Fund. <laughs> okay, so our vegan audience is not going to like that name. However, it's <laughs> it's a it's a great initiative for mostly small processors or small, sure. uh, you know, uh, managers of food systems, uh, people who are they employ less than uh, fifty people. Um, they can get matching funds uh, for uh, improvements to their, um, like, meat lockers or um, any any way that they can process food. And so Most people who know what a meat locker is, that, that term's not familiar mm-hmm. to everybody. Uh, you, we have these huge processing plants, Smithfield, uh, IBP, um, and of course Smithfield, of course, is owned by a Chinese corporation. These are the entities that will process thousands and thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of animals each day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the smaller entities, the smaller processing facilities that used to be very prominent employees in small towns. I mean, by, by prominent, I mean a family mm-hmm. of five, ten people might work there. A lot of those or have been more. forced. Yeah, or more. A lot of those have been forced to close. Right. Um, when I lived in Humiston, there's there's a meat locker there, a meat processor, and also in Mingo, and they Both are small the, towns. Kind of, yep. kind of part of the hubs of the towns. They even have little cafes, and so they can be a lot of the the I guess the meat of a small town. Wow. Uh, and, and and they gave farmers an option, a place to go other than to one of the big processors. But the whole, you know, the whole um, scheme has been set up in such a way that that you know, it's hard for these small entities to even stay afloat. So well, this what, initiative you're talking about is a good one because it's mm-hmm. it's helping revive some of those small meat lockers. Right. They get new refrigeration. They get some improvements to their systems. Uh, so there's more that can be done. And if you're going to talk to your legislators for the upcoming session about what your state can do to help secure uh, you know, better food systems for the people in your state and beyond, uh, first I would look into your your own state now to see what's already available and see what can be expanded on or look with, with at other states and see if there's something that they can borrow and make work in your state. For instance, encouragement, uh, statewide encouragement to plant fruit trees and shrubs and other edible plants where a lot of counties, cities, and businesses, churches, schools might be doing regular landscaping, they could be planting something that's edible instead. Yeah. One example here in Des Moines that we feel very good about uh, is, is, is around City Hall, instead of planting, you know, just grass or, you know, just kind of some, some bland shrub, mm-hmm. the city has planted lots of strawberries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, this is beautiful. I mean, it's a ground cover that is very effective at preventing, you don't have to mow, mm-hmm. it keeps the weeds out, and in June, there's this tremendous crop of berries that anybody can come and pick freely. And they've done mm-hmm. that in other places around the city as well. But more of that, you know, and, and more and encouragement for that. Yeah, other benefits are that most of these are blossoming plants, and that's good for pollination. Yeah. Uh, what about helping schools uh, to help kids get educated about where the food comes from and how to grow it, and not just to grow it, but to preserve it? and mm-hmm. use it uh, themselves. And yeah. so the benefit to healthy living right there, yeah. you, you want to be, the, Iowa wants to be the healthiest state. Well, that to <laughs> we got me, a ways to go. <laughs> helping people learn to grow food from a young age, instill that value uh, yeah. from that young age on. Yeah. Um, no, and, you know, it's, um, and I understand there's challenge. You talk, you talk to city officials about why not plant more fruit trees. Well, I understand. They, they don't want to do that because it requires ongoing maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the fruit isn't taken and eaten by people, then you've got kind of a mess around the base of the tree. I, my, my feeling is, okay, you got a mess around the base of the tree. Let it rot and go back into the soil. Big deal. That's also good for pollinators. Yeah, it's, it's also very good for pollinators at, at a time of the year when pollinators need that boost. Mm-hmm. And you've also, I mean, I understand, though, fruit trees need to be maintained, pruning, annual pruning. And, you know, you plant a boring tree <laughs> that has no value habitat-wise or food-wise for animals or humans, and there's less maintenance. Mm-hmm. But 
You know, that's why maybe this is a good time for the legislature to say, okay, we're going to try to help. Let's work with a church or mm-hmm. or uh, or a nonprofit or the city directly. Get some to, partnerships you know, going. To get a part, yeah, to get some kind of a program in place so that when you're planting trees, you can plant trees that are also edible to help assure that there's some supply of food. You know what saves money, too, is not putting up a lot of snow fence year after oh, year right, after right. year, having to buy the product and having to put it in, but to do, you know, natural snow fences. For instance, a serviceberry shrub. That could be either a tree or a shrub. That's also mm. known as a juneberry. And that makes a fantastic um, snow fence. Yeah, and juneberries are, are, again, great great pollinators in the spring. Lots of birds love to come and eat juneberries. And then people like me and Kathy like to eat them as well. We do. So talk to your legislators. <laughs> very good, actually. See what can be done. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us today. And folks, uh, yeah, remember, talk to your lawmakers about increasing food security at the local level. This is the time to do it. Hey, thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. So go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.